Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Demons and Satan himself have no concern about you and you've done nothing to harm them. But the one that they hate happens to be your dad. And if they don't like your dad, they're certainly not going to like you. And plus, you're an easier target to pick on, you realize. <laughs> Mess with the omnipotent, sovereign one of the universe or pick on his earthbound kids. That's... I think, the choice of those who want to cause problems. When you've been a Christian for a while, it can be easy to let your guard down against temptation. But today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is challenging us to stay alert against the enemy's schemes because temptation will come when we least expect it. Our message comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the familiar and tragic story of David and Bathsheba. Although the story may be recognizable to many of us, the lessons are all too relevant in this day and age. Well, here's Pastor Mike to explain. I grew up the uh, son of a policeman. Well, there were some folks that thought that was cool and I could uh, talk stories of, uh, you know, rides in the squad car and stuff like that. There was a group of uh, junior criminals in my world that uh, weren't so hot on the idea of my dad being the uh, neighborhood policeman, which of course uh, made it worse for me because he was the neighborhood policeman. He patrolled the area around our home and around my junior high school. Well, I... Uh, never quite realized that my association simply by being the son of my dad would cause me so much trouble with those that didn't like the law, didn't like law enforcement, didn't like policemen. But it was, even though I never wrote a ticket, I never confiscated anybody's marijuana, I never uh, impounded a bicycle, I never uh, arrested anyone for shoplifting, I was still the target of their hatred and frustration toward the police simply because I was related. That was all it took for them. Another reason, I suppose, was that I was an easier target. <laughs> you know, a little uh, skinny, zit-faced uh, seventh grader is a lot easier to pick on than the 200-pound cop with a 357 on his waist. So that made me an easier target. The day you committed your life to Christ, if you are indeed a Christian, you were adopted by the great lawgiver and law enforcement officer of the universe. He is the great king. He is the divine moral standard for all human behavior, and he is the judge of the universe. And according to the Bible, there were several onlookers that watched this happen who were quite thrilled at your decision. As a matter of fact, the Bible says some of the cosmic onlookers, the angels, rejoiced they had a party. And some passages of Scripture even suggest that they're a bit envious of the relationship that you have with your Heavenly Father. But the Bible is also very clear that there's another group of cosmic onlookers that weren't so excited. As a matter of fact, there's one person I know for absolute sure was not so happy about your decision. As a matter of fact, while the angels were having a party over the fact that you had come to the place of repentance and faith, there was at least one person I know for sure was plotting your demise. He was very interested in somehow dismantling your life. 
The Bible puts it this way in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says that we have an adversary, a roaring lion who is prowling around looking for someone to devour. And there's two reasons he does this. One, simply by nature of your relationship with your heavenly father. It's nothing personal, mind you. The demons and Satan himself have no concern about you and you've done nothing to harm them. But the one that they hate happens to be your dad. And if they don't like your dad, they're certainly not going to like you. And plus, you're an easier target to pick on, you realize. <laughs> Mess with the omnipotent, sovereign one of the universe or pick on his earthbound kids. That's, I think, the choice of those who want to cause problems. Not for you. That's not really the goal. The goal is to cause problems for your dad. There's two ways that these enemies can do this. Much like in my seventh grade experience, they can simply launch a uh, frontal attack. They can harass you. They can cause problems. They can call you names. They can make fun of you. They can hurt you directly. And in hurting the child of the one they don't like, they feel like they're in some way getting back and venting their frustration in an efficient and fruitful way. But there's another way to get back at the one they don't like by targeting their children. And that is a more insidious and much more effective way to really cause problems. And that would be, if you wanted to translate it into my seventh grade experience, it's simply to coax me, the son of the cop, to engage in criminal activity. You see, if they could make me a indulger in drugs, see, then uh, what's the one who enforces the drug laws in the neighborhood to do? If they get me to, to shoplift at Thrifty and pick up a few things that I want without paying for them, eh, then what's the, the law enforcement officer supposed to do when his son becomes the criminal? You see, it creates a scenario that's quite effective in frustrating the one they're really upset with. And that wasn't me, it was my dad. Satan's strategy is very active, not so much in the frontal attack, although he is our adversary and he does harass us from time to time with difficult situations in our lives. His primary strategy to get back at your heavenly father, which is really his target, is to make you the target of his temptation. Because if he can get you to engage in activity that your dad does not stand for, if he can take the standard of your heavenly father and get his kids to engage in that, then he frustrates the whole relationship. And he is effectively causing the kind of pain in the heart of the one he's really upset with. I don't know if we view temptation that way very often, but it's an important perspective to put it in. Because the issues that you face this week in your life, the alluring, attractive options to do something that compromises your walk with Christ is not just some benign option that everyone in the world faces. Oh, there's lots of choices and opportunities to sin for non-Christians and Christians alike. But for Christians, there is a strategy, an intelligent strategy behind off-ramps of this path of holiness to try and get you to do things that would ultimately frustrate your relationship with God. And he's very good at it. He's good at it, and he takes down some of God's best saints, and he's been doing it for centuries. While God is busy in the Old Testament with his saints, creating an aura around the phrase David and Goliath, 
Satan was plotting another phrase to be full of meaning in the minds of people to disgrace the name of God with phrases like David and Bathsheba. While we are plotting our victory in Christ, our enemy is trying to figure out how to unravel all of that and to do something in your life that would be counterproductive and take all the glory that your life has brought to Christ and put a big black mark on it. 2 Samuel chapter 11 shows us the most tragic chapter in King David's life. If you have your Bibles, you need to take a careful look at the first three verses of this passage and see that God is a God who though had given David everything so that he might serve him and be a great representative of him, Satan was busy trying to find the chink in the armor that would reverse all of that good in a moment of passion in David's life. You know the story, and it's unfortunate that I tell you this story after it's become so infamous, because you know how it ends up. But pretend with me for a few moments you don't know how this ends up, and let's just look a little bit at the context and realize that this seemed to be a pretty benign statement about what David was and wasn't doing. Look at it in verse number one. It says, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, You've got to understand the ancient Near East, you're going to fight a battle. You don't want to do it in the winter. You don't want to do it in the fall. You want to, you want to do it in a time when you've got, uh, you know, you've got uh, ripe uh, wheat in, in the fields. You've got some fruit on the trees. You've got uh, roads that are not muddied by rain. And, and so the springtime is an ideal time to take your troops and your war machines to go out and fight your battles. And notice that it says it's the time when the kings go off to war. See, there's no red phones. There's no satellite uplinks. There's no comm units in the ancient armies, if you were going to give directions to your army and you were the commander-in-chief, you better be there physically because there's no way to communicate hundreds of miles away. And so the kings would often go out with their armies and fight battles, and this was the time that they did it. David sent Joab, it says in the middle of verse 1, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites. You might remember in the last chapter we saw the Ammonites pick a fight with the Israelites, and the Israelites responded, and they responded with a victory, or at least it seemed. But in reality, all they did was back the Ammonites up into their capital, their big fortress city, the city of Rabbah. Well, the weather changed, the climate changed, there was no time to besiege the city. So it says here that they went back in the springtime to destroy the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah, and that's what they were engaged in doing. Five real tragic words here coming up at the end of verse 1. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now you can, I suppose, build a case for Dave for being there, and perhaps he had a legitimate reason for not being out where the kings normally were fighting a battle, but You've at least got to admit that David ends up being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You'd agree with that, right? You know the story. You know where it's going. But the real problem with David being in Jerusalem while his, while his army and his commanders were out in the field fighting a battle wasn't so much that David ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time, because all of us at times in our lives, unbeknownst to us, we end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. The real tragedy was that the David that we read about in this passage was a David that we've learned about who didn't just end up in the wrong place at the wrong time, he ended up at the wrong place in the wrong time with 
a wrong character. He ended up there with a backpack full of decisions he had made in his life that were small compromises that were about to explode and blossom into a huge compromise that would not only cost him his integrity, it would cost people their lives, and it would cost the kingdom greatly in the years that would follow. Now, I say that because all of us find ourselves sometimes in inopportune situations where Satan decides to creep in and tempt us to do wrong. But David was sin looking for a place to happen because the area that Satan chose to tempt him in was one that he had a long history of making compromises in, and that was simply the area of his sex life. You see, God had made it really clear at the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, God created Adam and Eve. And when he created Adam and Eve, Jesus was even smart enough to point out to the people, hey guys, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist here to figure out that the prototypical relationship should be the relationship that we model our own relationships after. And it wasn't Adam and Eve and Linda and Susan and, and Sally and all the rest of these gals. It was just Adam and Eve. And so you should realize that my design for marriage is one man, one woman in an intimate, sexual, romantic relationship for the rest of their lives. That was my plan. And of course, David decided to engage in something that was culturally acceptable. And what was culturally acceptable is if you're a great king of a great nation, then you probably are engaged in the ancient Near East in this period of having a harem. That was full not only of wives who had all the rights and all the, the, the privileges of being a wife, but you also had concubines. You had female slaves that were there just for your pleasure whenever you wanted them. This looked good on the resume. This was reflective of how we felt our king deserved to be treated. And it was something that no one seemed to care much about because everyone does it. David engaged in a compromise of collecting many wives, many concubines, which created in his life a pattern of compromise about sex in marriage that led him one day to cross a line that would devastate his life, his kids' lives, and the kingdom. You see, it wasn't just that David committed an awful sin with Bathsheba, decided to cover it up with murder one Thursday afternoon when it just Satan appeared and gave him an option to do it. It happened after years of compromise in his life. I don't know of anybody that comes to my office in the wake of some terrible catastrophe spiritually in their life and tells me that this just happened one afternoon. Oh, the event that really blew everything apart may have happened on one afternoon, but it was a long series of smaller compromises. You see, David had set himself up. He made him an easy target for the enemy. He didn't make it hard for Satan to blow up the kingdom at this point. He made it easy for him because he brought in a long series of compromises. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first thing we can learn from this passage. Is that if we want to avoid the tragedy of chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel and all that is to follow, then we need to be careful not to set ourselves up. Don't set yourself up. How do you do that? Not only do you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, which sometimes is excusable and sometimes it's not, but you come to your life and you bring to it a lot of small compromises. You see, you know how it works. You see, no one engages and gets entangled or embroiled in pornography who doesn't already have a thought life that's out of control. 
You see, I don't know anybody who engages in, in, in sexual sin and immorality in areas that they never would have that, that haven't already laid a foundation in the area of pornography and sexual sin and transgressing God's rules in sex. Usually, you don't get to the next level of criminal sexual activity unless you've engaged in that. Do you see how this is a big, a big chain reaction? And it's not just about sex, you realize. Pick a sin. There's a lot of sins that entangle and embroil people's lives that bring disgrace to the name of Christ that people are ashamed of when they're embroiled in it to even mention that they're a Christian. It may be they find themselves in bankruptcy court with everybody and all their creditors breathing down their neck wondering how we got here. Well, you didn't get there overnight one Thursday afternoon when something bad happened. It usually in many people's situations has been a long series of compromises that relate to my greed or my materialism or what I want and when I want it, and we find our lives unraveling. And we find the name of Christ and the testimony of his name marred. Pick another sin, whatever you want. You realize, don't you, that the big blowouts in our spiritual life, they don't happen one Thursday afternoon. They happen because we're sin waiting for a place to happen. It's a weakness, and that's where Satan starts. What your, what's yours? What is your weakness? Whatever it is, he's going to try and exploit it. And we either open the chink in the armor with our further compromises, or we begin to close the chinks in our armor, and we protect and defend that area of weakness. What is your area of weakness? Years ago, I blew out my knee in a sporting event, and uh, you know, it was one of those ugly uh, athletic injuries. Well, I went to the doctor and then ended up with uh, a rehab doctor who said to me, you know what, um, we can do one of two things. We can lay your knee open at that time was the thing to do and we can add a lot of screws and, 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 and build it all back together and it'll be a lot of pain, you'll never be the same. Or you can do a couple of things that will prevent this from ever happening again and the need not ever having to exist of rebuilding this in some artificial way. You can, one, you can go to the gym and you can work real hard to compensate for the weakness in the ligaments in your knee and you can build up real strong muscles around your knee. And if you were to do that, that would really help. And then number two, you should really be careful in your life never to do anything that's going to put undue stress on those knees. Well, my response to that was, I'll take the latter. I don't want things in my, my knee that don't need to be there. I'd like to try and do this the natural way. And if I can, I'd like to do my best to rebuild it. So whenever I make it to the gym, which I may not be able to convince you very often, but when I make it out to the gym, you can bet that one thing I'm going to do is give attention to my weak knee and try and do something to wake up those muscles around it and protect that weakness. And secondarily, you can imagine that if I'm offered an opportunity to do something that would put undue stress on my knee, I'm, I'm probably going to turn you down. Go ahead, let's try it. You invite me to go skiing with you this winter. Go ahead, invite me. No, no, I don't want to go. The answer is no. Ask me again. Tell me you got a great cabin, you got a great place to ski, you got a ski lift ticket, and then you're going to go, it's going to be great. Answer no, I'm not going. And I'm not going to go because I don't want to risk it. And I'm bold enough to say, I got a problem. And if I don't protect that problem and that weakness, I'm going to be in a heap of trouble. So I got to keep trying to go to the gym to help my knee out. And I've also got to make sure that I don't engage in any activities that would put me at risk. Call it legalism if you want. Are you tracking with me? But it's just wisdom. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? 
There are things in my life that I will not do that you may feel the freedom to do, and you may call me a legalist for not participating, but I know my weaknesses and I don't want to go there. Do you have that kind of vigilance about your spiritual life that I have about my physical bones and my leg? That's the kind of vigilance we need to have, cognizant of my weakness, knowing, God, I'm vulnerable. What is your vulnerability? For David, it was sex, and for a lot of people in our culture, it's still sex, isn't it? God's built some parameters, and he says you can blow your life up and destroy it right here. Just step outside of these parameters. If you know that's your weakness, then what are you doing to protect it? Is your goal, like a lot of immature Christians' goal, how close can I get to sin without crossing the line? Or is it wisdom? Which is how far away can I get from ever putting my life in danger by tempting that particular weakness of my life to destroy everything that I've been trying to build up in my walk with Christ? Don't set yourself up. You set yourself up by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay, sometimes we can't control that. But you sure can control what you bring to those moments of vulnerability. Have you prepared? Have you protected? Have you defended? And when I say protect that weakness, I don't mean protect it with secrecy. I mean you protect it with accountability. Do you understand the difference? People know your weakness. Do people know your weakness? Are you one of those private Christians? Because if you're a private Christian, then you're a sin waiting for a place to happen. David sitting around in Jerusalem was not a good idea, not just because he should have been on the battlefield, but it's not a good idea because I know who David is. And David's got a lot of compromise in his life. So, verse 2, one evening, as though it were some chance happening, and you know, and I know, because we have an enemy that seeks to devour us, it was no accident that David that night could not sleep, and he got up from his bed, and it says in verse 2, he walked around on the roof of the palace. That's the way these homes were built, big decks built above the rooms, and he, I'm sure, in the royal palace had a great view of the whole city of David, and he walked out on his deck, not able to sleep, and hey, what do you know, by chance, middle of verse 2, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, what are the chances of that? I suppose it can happen. What are the chances that he gets up, he can't sleep, he's restless, he sees this gal, and wow, what do you know? I got a great view of this thing. And then it says in the bottom of verse 2, what? The woman was a real plain Jane. She was really just a dog, pretty much. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that because it's a very specific woman. Because you know if Satan's going to blow this thing up, he ain't going to pick a girl that's not attractive. As a matter of fact, you know he's probably going to pick the most attractive gal in the city. Accident? Or was it a sinister plot and a strategy to bait the hook with exactly what David wanted? You're listening to Focal Point and a message called Essential Strategies for Beating Temptation from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you'd like the study notes or if you'd like to listen to the complete message without interruption, go to focalpointradio.org. You can also stream the program anytime by downloading the Focal Point mobile app. We work hard to make Pastor Mike's teaching available for you in as many formats as we can, but none of it would be possible without the generous donations of your fellow listeners. If you've given to support this ministry in the past, thank you. This month we're featuring a book that will help you understand God's grace in an even deeper way. It's called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. If you're struggling with your faith, 
or if you know someone who has doubts about God, then this will be a helpful guide for understanding how to be saved and our constant need for grace. We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our way of saying thanks for your support today. To make a donation, call 888-320-5885. You can also give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. Now, these are people just like you who listen to the program and want to spread God's truth around the world. Our partners help us minister to others by providing free access to all of Pastor Mike's sermons, devotionals, and videos, and helping cover our radio airtime costs. So sign up today, won't you, when you go online to focalpointradio.org or when you call us at 888-320-320. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. We'll be answering a question that is at the heart of our cultural debate today. Is there really such a thing as sin? Well, make sure to join us again for this important topic Friday on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.